Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Hi, everybody. <laughs> oh, boy. Welcome back to Dark Poutine. I am Mike Brown, and the dirty-minded person at his home in Vancouver is Matthew Stockton. Hello, Matthew. I'm so glad you weren't recording. I'm glad I wasn't recording, too, because we already have an explicit tag for the show. <laughs> because I can't stop swearing. Yeah, but, you know, it would be even worse if we aired what you were talking about there. I was so. just talking about somebody that I find attractive. That's correct. Anyway, yeah. moving forward... <laughs> The views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Poutine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate, Global News, nor their parent company, Chorus Entertainment. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Listener discretion is strongly advised. We're not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We're two ordinary Canadians chatting about crime and the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double and an Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. You are responsible for obtaining and maintaining at your own cost all equipment needed to listen to dark poutine. Dark poutine can be addictive. Side effects may include, but not be limited to, pausing and questioning the system, elevated heart rate, pondering humanity, odd looks from colleagues as you laugh out loud at work, family members not into true crime worrying about you. Positive side effects may include some perspectives and opinions that you disagree with, as well as some wokeness and empathy. If you don't think dark poutine is for you, consult your doctor immediately. This week, we discuss the shooting death of American Mark Harshbarger during a 2006 family hunting trip to Buckins Junction, Newfoundland. The Meshoppin, Pennsylvania man was shot by his wife, Mary Beth, who claims she thought he was a black bear. In 2010, Mary Beth was extradited to Newfoundland, where she stood trial for criminal negligence causing death. Friends and some of Mark's family members believe she should have been charged with first-degree murder. After two weeks of hearings in September of that same year, the presiding judge found her not guilty. The shooting death of Mark Harshbarger has been a source of controversy since it occurred. Some people believe that Mary Beth Harshbarger was guilty of first-degree murder motivated by greed, while others believe the shooting of her husband was a tragic accident. It's important to note that there is no consensus on what happened the night of the shooting, and legally, the case is closed. The accounts of what happened and the subsequent investigation make it a compelling story to have another look at, especially as many interesting details, including a possible motive, were not admissible at Mary Beth's trial due to the nature of her charges. 
Regardless, it is also important to remember that this topic is very sensitive for many people. The family and friends of Mark Harshbarger are still grieving his death, and Mary Beth Harshbarger has gone through a great deal herself. Mark's children have lost their father. We aim to be respectful of all parties involved when discussing this fascinating case. This is Dark Poutine Episode 306, The Tragic Death of Mark Harshbarger. Like it or not, hunting has played a significant role in the building of our nation and continues to be a large factor in shaping our outdoor culture, mostly common in more rural regions. Canada's vast wilderness encompasses a significant portion of the country's total area. This country is the second largest country in the world, with a total area of approximately 9.98 million square kilometers. Much of this expanse comprises diverse wilderness areas, including national parks, conservation areas, and remote landscapes untouched by extensive human development. Protected areas are critical in conserving Canada's wilderness's natural beauty and biodiversity. Over 12% of Canada's land and freshwater areas are designated as conservation areas, with efforts ongoing to increase this percentage to protect more of the natural environment. The Canadian wilderness includes various ecosystems from the temperate rainforests of British Columbia to the Arctic tundra of the north, the expansive boreal forests stretching across much of the country, to the prairie grasslands and the rugged Atlantic coastline. These areas are home to many wildlife and plant species, some unique to Canada. The abundance of wildlife with valuable furs played a significant role in the initial European settlement in Canada. The fur trade has been a central element in Canada's history, shaping the country's economic, social, and political landscapes from the early 16th century to the 19th century. It was the driving force behind the exploration and colonization of vast territories serving as the backbone of the Canadian economy for centuries. The trade began with the demand for beaver pelts in Europe, primarily for making felt hats. This led to establishing trade relationships between European traders and indigenous peoples. These complex relationships involved economic exchanges and significant cultural and social interactions. The fur trade led to the establishment of the North American fur trading companies, most notably the Hudson's Bay Company and the Northwest Company, which set up a network of trading posts across the continent. These posts became the centers of trade for indigenous trappers who exchanged furs for European goods, such as metal tools, firearms, blankets, and clothing. This trade network facilitated the mapping of Canada's geography and laid the groundwork for national development. Moreover, the fur trade played a critical role in forming Canada's multicultural society as it brought together people from diverse backgrounds including Europeans, Indigenous peoples, and later Métis communities, which emerged from the intermarriage between European traders and Indigenous women, mostly. However, the fur trade also had profound impacts on Indigenous societies, including dependency on European goods, alteration of traditional lifestyles, and involvement in European rivalries and conflicts. Despite these challenges, the fur trade era is a testament to the resilience and adaptability of Indigenous peoples who were essential partners in trade. As Canada evolved, the fur trade diminished in importance with the decline of the beaver hat fashion in Europe, and the rise of other economic activities. Yet its legacy is still evident today in Canada's place names, cultural expressions, 
and the continued significance of fur in some indigenous and northern economies. Hunting and trapping, for various reasons, still occur across the country, again in more rural regions. Indigenous people, for example, have the right to hunt for food based on treaties or recognized Aboriginal titles. Hunting, as we all know, is a practice dating back to the earliest humans for various purposes, including subsistence, trade, and conservation. It employs diverse techniques and tools across different climates worldwide. While subsistence hunting is crucial for some communities' survival, modern regulations may restrict hunting practices for others. Yeah, you know I'm from a big hunting family. Yeah, and this is why I thought that you might really enjoy talking about what happens in this particular story. You'd have knowledge that maybe I wouldn't because I was never a hunter. Yeah, we grew up hunting, fishing, trapping. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So Canada's vast wilderness and abundant wildlife, including many large and small game animals, make it an ideal destination for game hunting enthusiasts like the Harshbarger family from Meshopin, Pennsylvania. Meshopin, from which the Harshbargers hail, is situated in Wyoming County, Pennsylvania, a borough of just over 500 people, epitomizing rural American life along the scenic Susquehanna River. With roots stretching back to Native American heritage and European settlement in the 18th century, Meshopin has evolved while maintaining its close-knit community and agricultural economy. The area's geography, marked by the Susquehanna River, rolling hills, and lush forests, is pivotal in the local lifestyle and economy, offering abundant outdoor recreational opportunities. Residents and visitors enjoy fishing, boating, hiking, hunting, and wildlife observation, making Meshopin a haven for those seeking tranquility and a connection to nature. This small borough, with its rich history, community events, and natural beauty, stands as testament to the enduring charm of rural Pennsylvania. Born on the 11th of October 1963 in Lewiston, Pennsylvania, Mark Harshbarger was the son of Leonard Lee Harshbarger from Sweet Valley, Pennsylvania, and Beulah Anna Yutzi Harshbarger, who passed away in 1995. Mark graduated from Lake Lehman High School in 1981, and he was an active participant on the wrestling team, contributing to the team's victory in the 1981 Double A Pennsylvania State Team Championship. Following graduation, Mark served in the U.S. Air Force as a military police officer from 1981 to 84, primarily stationed within the country. For 17 years, up until his death, he worked as a project manager at PDG Environmental in Drums, Pennsylvania. Mark was actively involved in the Franklin Masonic Lodge 263 in Laceyville and was a member of the NRA. He also contributed his expertise as a wildlife nuisance control agent for the Pennsylvania Game Commission. In his leisure time, he cherished hunting and fishing with his family and devoted time to building a new house and maintaining the 230-acre family farm that his wife, Mary Beth, had inherited on Briar Ridge. Mark's family told a CBC documentary crew that although he was a big strapping guy, he was also a, quote, cupcake. Mark came from a hunting family, and Mark's dad, Lee, and two of his other sons work for the Pennsylvania State Game Commission. Mark's sisters shoot, fish, and hunt as well. CBC's True Crime Canada reported that Mary Beth Kittner was a bit of a wild child growing up. 
She was outgoing, outspoken, and known for racing and beating the local guys in her black and gold Trans Am in races on the town streets. Mary Beth was pretty and popular with the guys, dating many young men until she finally settled down with Mark Harshbarger. Mark wanted a partner he could hunt and fish with, and Mary Beth fit that bill nicely. She was 35 and Mark was 36 when they met in 2000. Mary Beth was an accomplished, dead-eyed, competitive sharpshooter like legendary Annie Oakley. She consistently achieved three-inch grouping with ten consecutive rounds from 1,000 yards, and that's no small feat. She seemed fearless compared to a lot of the other girls. She wasn't exactly a tomboy, always, however, maintaining a sense of femininity, even while participating in what some considered more male pursuits. She was just as competitive as many of Mark's male friends, and the couple bonded over their mutual interests. Mark had been in a long-term relationship, but broke up with that woman soon after he met Mary Beth, and they'd been inseparable ever since. Mary Beth's friend Amy told CBC that Mary Beth was tough and not exactly warm and fuzzy. In the same documentary, Mary Beth's cousin, Mark Abishady, said that Mary Beth was opinionated, unafraid to speak her mind, and far from diplomatic when she did so. Another friend to the couple, Bill Ive, said that Mary Beth was prone to mood swings. One minute she was sweet as pie, and the next, if something upset her, she was ready to fight, yelling and screaming. Yeah, I think um, whenever there's stories like this, you gotta. I always find that uh, if you have a strong-willed woman, mm-hmm. often it's portrayed as oh, the hysterical woman sort of right. thing in in the media. If it was a guy, would they say the same things? Right, family or friends, whatever. Right? right, and 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 so I think we just have to be obviously you you know this as well, just careful of. Uh, how we how we paint her as a woman. This is why I'm using quotes about what people yes. said about her instead yeah. of just making an opinion myself. Yeah, and I think there's uh, there's nothing wrong with being honest and a strong person and saying what you mm-hmm. feel. But I do love that saying though, Mike. Uh, when you shoot an arrow of truth, dip its point in honey. Yes, <laughs> right. Yeah. I think it it goes a little bit further. You can. You can be honest with people. There's a difference between honest being honest with people and and sharing opinions and and being overly pointed at the same time. Right. right. Well, Mary Beth went a little beyond honesty, and so there were many stories about Mary Beth's instability and willingness to resort to violence. Uh, so, according to Chris Wilkins' Outdoor Canada article on the case, Mary Beth had exhibited extreme behaviors in her past, such as driving a vehicle into an ex-lover's house at high speed, strangling a teenage girl who had spoken to her boyfriend and shooting a man in the leg over a perceived betrayal. Ooh, ouch, that's some pretty serious stuff. So I don't know how, what she used to shoot that person in the you leg. Know, you know what? I was sitting here thinking, well, I shot my brother with a BB gun, <laughs> right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty serious stuff, though, isn't it? I mean, yeah. that's, that's, a, that's a not, not a good pattern of behavior. No, so to me, it says this is somebody who may have some problems, and we'll get into that. Regardless of Mary Beth's volatility, she and Mark Harshbarger were married on June 23, 2001. Despite managing her bipolar disorder with medication for years, her condition worsened in 2005 when pregnancy necessitated stopping her medication, 
leading her to being committed to a psychiatric hospital in Carbondale, Pennsylvania. Her unpredictable nature extended to her relationship with Mark, as observed by Mark's brother Dean Harshbarger, who noted instances of physical abuse. Dean said he'd seen Mary Beth slapping Mark in the face repeatedly. Mark simply held her back and did not respond in kind. Described as a dominant, intimidating figure, Mary Beth's control over people often manifested as bullying, according to some. Mark rarely spoke of the troubles in his marriage, a situation Brother Dean attributes to Mark's pride. After the initial troubles with Mary Beth's bipolar issues by the fall of 2006, Mark and Mary Beth had settled into the routine of family life. They took their children, four-year-old Myra Lee and eight-month-old Elijah, on their hunting and fishing excursions, wanting to include them early on. In 2006, the Harshbarger family chose Buckins Junction, Newfoundland as a dream destination to go do some game hunting. Mark had been to Newfoundland before with his dad and loved it. Mark's dad, Lee, later fondly recalled the father-son trip to the CBC. Quote, it's a beautiful country. He and I both loved it there. Nice little streams and real remote areas, end quote. Mark and Mary Beth had been there before, too. Mark was determined to return with his kids to show them a place they'd so enjoyed in their younger days. The family packed up their camper and drove the three days to Newfoundland, taking the ferry across to the island to arrive at their destination. Buckins is a notable town with a rich history rooted in mining and distinctive environmental setting. Located in the central part of the province, Buckins has a legacy tied closely to the exploitation of its vast mineral resources. The history of Buckins begins in the early 20th century with the discovery of base metal ores. The town's development is attributed mainly to the mining operations established by the American Smelting and Refining Company, ASARCO, in the 1920s. The discovery of valuable minerals such as zinc, lead, copper, gold, and silver led to Buckins becoming a thriving mining community. The mining operations were significant for the town and for the broader economic development of Newfoundland and Labrador, contributing significantly to the province's mining sector. The mine in Buckins was one of the most productive in Canada, creating numerous jobs and fostering a strong sense of community among the residents. However, like many resource-dependent towns, Buckins faced challenges as mineral reserves were depleted. The mine eventually closed in the late 1980s, leading to economic and demographic shifts in the town. Despite the closure, the mining legacy is still evident in Buckins, with its history preserved through community efforts, including museums and historical sites. Since 1927, and continuing beyond the closure of the Buckins Railway in 1977, the community has been referred to as Buckins Junction. You know what saddens me is the lack of rail service in this country. Mm. Having spent a lot of time in Europe with, you know, you can complain about the trains being late in the UK, but there's really good rail service and lots of small towns that were sort of reliant on the railways. Right. Of, often die a little bit when when the the stations close we used to have a railway uh that traveled all across uh lunenburg county when right. i was uh, growing up and that's when it began to shut down there was no more passenger rail that i recall right although there were still ads on the radio for a store in mahone bay so the right. radio in bridgewater played an ad for a store called Bill's Store in Mahone right. Bay, and it used to say, all aboard for Bill's Store. 
And so everybody would pile onto a train, I guess, to go to Bill's store in Mahone Bay. But alas, there are no more railways throughout Nova Scotia. A lot of them have been turned into nature trails, and my dad likes to ride his bike on them. I mean, that's nice, but, you know, I... I don't know. I imagine how cool it would be if we had a high speed rail from like Vancouver to Calgary, then up to Edmonton at least. That'd be so good. But the problem in Canada is there'd be low ridership and the amount of maintenance that would have to happen over this vast terrain would be, you know. True, true. But that's why you've, you know, I, th- I think you can do sections, right? You can do mm-hmm. sections, right? Um, and low ridership happens when you don't have good service. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. People love their cars, though, Matthew. Yeah, but if you could jump on a train and it comes every 15 minutes, right? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. Well, that's what I noticed about being in the UK, that it's a very train-focused culture there. I mean, yeah, there are still cars. There are lots of cars, but uh, it's super easy to just get on a train and go anywhere. Justin, I always jumped on a train to go down and see his mom, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Next station, barking. (laughs) (laughs) I say that because I can hear Steve snoring. Anyway, in the broader region around Buckins, hunters can expect to find moose, black bear, and caribou among Newfoundland and Labrador's most sought-after big game. The province is particularly noted for having one of the highest moose densities in North America, making moose hunting a significant draw. Woodland caribou, indigenous to the island of Newfoundland, provide unique hunting opportunities, though specific regulations apply to ensure their conservation. Black bear hunting is also popular, with the province offering spring and fall hunting seasons in certain areas. Like the rest of Canada, in Newfoundland and Labrador, individuals aiming to apply for hunting licenses and hunt with firearms must complete the Canadian Firearm Safety Course, CFSC, and the Hunter Education, HE course, starting from age 12 with parental consent for minors. The CFSC educates on firearm safety, storage, handling, and transportation, which are essential for obtaining a Possession and Acquisition License, PAL. At the same time, the HE course delves into wildlife conservation, hunting laws, ethics, and survival skills, both necessary for provincial hunting licensure. Bow hunting education, though not mandatory, is recommended and requires completion of a recognized safety education course. Additionally, online hunter education is now available, allowing learners to complete coursework at their pace with registration for the CFSC facilitated through institutions like the College of the North Atlantic. Of course, Mark and Mary Beth Harshbarger did not need any training, nor did Mark's older brother Barry, who was traveling with them. All were experienced hunters and were comfortable and more than competent in handling firearms. They did employ a local guide, however, a man named Lambert Green, who was affiliated with the nearby Moosehead Lodge, where the family stayed during their visit. The Harshbargers had obtained licenses for hunting moose, caribou, and bear. The family spent a few days hunting in the area and were pleased to see several bears, and Mark even bagged one. Barry Harshbarger told CBC's Bob McEwen that he was over the moon having seen bears in the wild like that. Back home in Pennsylvania, he'd never seen one during bear season. Earlier that week, the Harshbargers had also successfully hunted a caribou, leaving them seeking moose and bear on the day Mark Harshbarger met his demise, as allowed by the remaining licenses. On the 14th of September, in the late afternoon of their final planned day of hunting, 
The Harshbargers, accompanied by their guide, Lambert Green, and their children, set off in Mr. Green's pickup truck for a hunting expedition. Mary Beth desperately wanted to bag a bear of her own. Mark Harshbarger was scouting for wildlife from the truck's bed, while Mr. Green drove the vehicle with Mary Beth and the children in the cab. After dropping off Barry Harshbarger at a bear stand, they explored several gravel roads in the woods in search of a moose and bear. Desperately wanted to beg a bear of her own. Yep. That that sentence sticks out to me. Um, me too. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, I can remember one of my dad's friends once talking about not letting the excitement of the hunt uh, let you get your guard down on safety, right? Mm-hmm. And because you, when you're overly excited and, and, oh, I got to get it, I got to get it. And you shoot before you really confirm what you're shooting at, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that, that really stood out. Yeah. At one point, Lambert Green and Mark Harshbarger headed off to scout for animals, taking a different path back to the truck than the one they'd left by. After rejoining Mary Beth and the children in the truck, they moved to another location to continue their hunt. They'd planned for Mark and Lambert to enter the woods and flush animals out toward the truck where Mary Beth had positioned herself in the truck bed, armed with a high-powered rifle, a .30-06 Weatherby Mark V Deluxe, equipped with a Leopold VX-7 scope. This was a tactic that Mark and Mary Beth had previously employed while hunting back at home in the United States. In search of game in the waning light, Mark Harshbarger and Lambert Green navigated through a cutover area along a skitter trail characterized by its challenging terrain with uneven water ruts, a mix of old and new vegetation, and obstacles like fallen trees and rocks. It was hard going. They ascended an incline into a grove of trees, reaching a vantage point overlooking a cutover and a bog. Beyond this cutover area, within the trees, they were no longer visible from the truck. They spent approximately half an hour hunting in this secluded spot. As sunset approached, they decided to head back, planning to hunt along the road as they went to retrieve Barry Harshbarger and then return to the lodge, keeping within the legal hunting time, which extends half an hour past sunset. On their return along the same path, Mr. Green paused to pee. They were still out of sight from his truck. Mark Harshbarger moved ahead toward the vehicle. Shortly after, Lambert Green heard a gunshot, followed by what he described as a scream. It was 7.55 p.m. More after a quick break. I'm Samantha Cole, host of the new season of Understood, The Pornhub Empire. Over the course of four episodes, I'll tell you how a horny YouTube knockoff in Canada came to dominate the porn world only to shatter their cheeky reputation in a massive scandal. The Pornhub Empire is a new season of Understood from the CBC. Available now wherever you get your podcasts. And we are back. Matthew, thoughts so far? From my personal experience, there's there's a strong culture of safety within the hunting community, at least, you know, the people that I knew. Me too. Yeah, you know, and we were taught at a very early age how, how to check if a gun's loaded, how to handle it, how to store it, and how to ensure that there weren't other hunters in your party sort of in, in the area when you're hunting, right? Yeah. Um, and in fact, I'd trust a hunter with a gun more than anyone else. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I'd probably sure. concerns with the gun even more than the police, right? Yeah. Um, because they're hunting for animals. Um, they probably use their firearm more than a police officer would have to. Yeah. And, and hunting accidents are actually quite rare, but they do happen. So, you know, uh, the latest stats that were like 2015 to 2019 and in that time frame, around 11 Canadian hunters died each year from accident each each year each year but what's interesting is the number one cause of hunting injuries isn't even gun related it's falling from trees or the tree stands oh boy yeah yeah so more people are hurt or killed falling from trees and tree stands than than from guns yeah. so but you know but sometimes bad things happen like in in 2013 in the first week of hunting season in ontario six hunters were shot six in the first week, wow. In the first week, right? So, you know, I, as a hunter, you have a responsibility to be safe. But at the same time, you know you're going into a situation where there's risk. And, you know, you're, you're, you're in, in a risky situation any, anywhere, I'd suggest, where they're flying bullets, right? Yeah. And sometimes the absolute worst thing can happen, and, and it's really sad, but it's facts, isn't it? Yeah, you make it sound like hunting season is just you go out in the woods and there's flying bullets everywhere, but it's kind of, it's not like that, really. <laughs> it's, it's not like that, but but no. there are flying bullets, right? Yep, yep. Yeah. That's why farmers paint the word cow on the side <laughs> of their cows so they don't get shot. So they paint cow in big fluorescent... Is that true? It has happened. So, on hearing the shot and then the scream, Lambert Green hurried back along the path toward the truck. Mr. Green discovered Mark Harshbarger face down and lifeless. Upon checking for any signs of life and finding none, he noticed Mary Beth Harshbarger near the vehicle. He later mentioned that visibility was clear enough to see his truck with the sun setting behind the trees from which he emerged. Lambert yelled to Mary Beth, who he could see standing near the truck around 62 meters away. He asked her if she'd fired her rifle. Mary Beth said she'd shot a bear. Mary Beth asked whether she'd killed it, and that's when Lambert Green told her that she'd shot Mark. Upon returning to the truck, Lambert noted that Mary Beth was visibly distressed and in a state of hysteria. Their daughter had also emerged from the truck seeking comfort from her mother, who she saw was upset. According to Outdoor Canada, Mary Beth screamed, Oh God, and repeatedly said, I've killed my love. From the moment immediately following the shooting, Mary Beth consistently maintained she had targeted a bear despite the tragic outcome of mistakenly shooting her husband. She informed Lambert and others that she'd intended to shoot a bear. After they returned to the hunting lodge, she recounted to Stephen Mulrooney, the lodge's cook, that she had confirmed her target through her scope twice, believing she saw a bear at the forest's edge. Mulrooney said later that she emphasized she had not noticed the blue of her husband's pants, only the black color she associated with a bear. Mark had not been wearing a hunter's orange vest that day. According to the 2022-23 Hunting and Trapping Guide on the Government of Newfoundland's website, whether or not you're wearing a hunter orange vest is required depends on the type of hunting that you're doing. For deer, moose, and bear gun hunting seasons, all hunters must wear a minimum of 2,580 square centimeters or 400 square inches of solid hunter orange clothing above the waist that is visible from all sides and head cover. I had a vest and a hat. Some exceptions to the mandatory hunter orange requirement are bear hunters hunting from an elevated stand, and this is what the Harshbargers were doing, bow hunters 
during bow-only seasons and waterfowl hunters. It's important to note that even though hunter orange is not mandatory for these exceptions, it is still strongly recommended for safety reasons, and Mark Harshbarger's death starkly highlights this. Yeah, and, and you know, this isn't victim-blaming at all. It's a shame no. that he didn't ha- have it. Maybe it wouldn't have happened, but it, it was... Um... Um, not his fault, right? Uh, but yeah. uh, you know, anyone listening who hunts, just always wear it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, always, always wear the orange. Uh, I know people that even who live in rural areas, farmers who uh, have given people permission to hunt on their land, who who wear them if they're just going for a walk, just to be safe. That's if I was in the woods in Nova Scotia during hunting season, I mentioned I had a vest and a hat. Mm-hmm. I was never a hunter. I wore a vest and a hat during hunting season to go out and to play in the woods because there is a possibility somebody is going to mistake me. Yeah. Well, not, I was a small guy, so maybe not for a bear, but maybe they would have mistaken me for a lynx or something else, something more exciting. (laughs) I'd be mistaken for a bear. You are a bear, Matthew. (laughs) Anyway... Uh, but but yeah, my natural habitat is Davy Street. <laughs> it, it, <laughs> it is wise to wear hunter orange vest and or hat when walking in the woods during hunting season in areas known to be hunted. You know, when I first moved to Vancouver and I had this this uh, misconception that I'd be in the mountains hiking all the time and getting healthy. Yeah. Um, and then I realized that um, it's really expensive here, so I just work all the time. Um, I bought like a bright orange jacket because I'm like, if I ever get into trouble, I'll be able to at least find my body from a distance. Yeah. And <laughs> it's safe. Yeah. It makes safer, you safe. Right. But nobody's hunting around the Vancouver hiking trails. I think being in a bright color in nature is always a little bit safer. Yeah. Yeah. Especially if you get lost or if you get hurt, right? Yep. Mark Harshbarger had died almost right away when a large caliber bullet tore through his sternum, blasted through his heart, and exited through his opposite shoulder. According to Dr. Denick, the pathologist who conducted an autopsy on Mark, the trajectory of the wound indicated that Mark seemed to have been leaning over when he was shot. During interrogation, Mary Beth Harshbarger explained to a police investigator how she initially spotted what she believed to be a bear with her naked eye before confirming her sighting through the scope of her rifle. She stated that she observed the target, which appeared black, low to the ground and bear-like in shape, for two to three minutes through her scope before deciding to shoot, thinking it was a bear based on its appearance and movement. Mary Beth was adamant she did not see her husband, Mark Harshbarger, either with the naked eye or through the scope prior to firing the shot that led to his death. She insisted that her perception was of a bear, initially with her naked eye and then magnified through her light-gathering scope. The officer questioned the clarity of her sighting, especially considering the conditions and the fact that what she shot was not a bear but her husband. Although distraught, knowing she had shot Mark, Mary Beth remained steadfast in her claim that she thought she was shooting at a bear, again describing the target as distinctly bear-like, even when observed directly and through her scope. The scream that Lambert Green had heard, Mary Beth later told police, was her husband, Mark. She claimed they'd never had any marital problems, and they had the perfect marriage and life together. She had lived for Mark and looked forward to him returning home from work every day. Given the circumstances, the time of day, Mark's not wearing a safety vest, and Mary Beth's interviews, at that point, 36 hours after Mark's death, 
The RCMP were satisfied that this was a tragic accident. Mary Beth was allowed to leave. Barry Harshbarger was the one who called home to tell family that Mark was dead. According to CBC's Bob McCune, things seemed off when Mary Beth refused help from family members offering to come to Newfoundland. She insisted that the kids and Barry would drive the camper home themselves. Mark's family was shocked that rather than mourning her loss, Mary Beth insisted Barry Harshbarger help her to process the meat from their hunting keels, a bear and a caribou. She wasn't talking much and seemed cold in her actions. For example, the day after she arrived uh, home, she just went to Mark's work and picked up his personal belongings. And so some family members found that odd. One thing I've learned, though, is you can't judge how people handle loss. Mm -hmm. And um, you can be upset and practical at the same time. Totally. (laughs) Very much so. And and I actually appreciate the fact that she wanted to ensure that the animal meat is being processed. Mm -hmm. You know, they're they're not trophy hunters. and, And... well, they did. They did have trophies in their home, but they weren't. That wasn't. That wasn't the only thing that they were doing. We had moose head as well, but we ate the moose, right? Right. To me, that there's a, a code of respect that good hunters have for the animal, and that's making sure you use it all. And so, I don't judge her on that at all. I understand that too, and and I don't even come from a hunting family. Yeah. And and she and Mark did. Mm-hmm. So there must have been something else that was bothering his family. I mean, you know, they... Well, they'd they'd be obviously upset, right? And there were other things that we're about to get into. Mary Beth had Mark cremated. According to Outdoor Canada, Mark's sister Sharon Chorba clarified that the family did not initially suspect foul play at the scene of the shooting, acknowledging Mary Beth's ability to appear sincere. The family appreciated the police's subsequent investigation, but questioned why the circumstances of the shooting, including Mary Beth's decision to fire without clear identification of her target during a questionable time of day, were not scrutinized further. Furthermore, other things came to light after Mark's death. Only weeks before their trip to Newfoundland, Mary Beth had upped Mark's life insurance policy payout significantly from $100,000 to $550,000. According to Outdoor Canada, Mark had told his brother Dean and a friend, Chris Osman, about the policy change and said Mary Beth was planning to kill him. The way Chris Osman told the story in the CBC documentary, he said that he asked Mark if he was kidding and Mark looked directly into his eyes and said, I think Mary Beth is going to kill me. So whether he was playing around and joking, we'll never know, but... Yeah, it's... Um, it's motive. Yeah. There's a motive. There's motive, um, mm-hmm. but, but I'm, I'm not seeing anything that proves anything either, right? Right, yeah. Um, and you know what? If Justin and I were going hunting, I'd probably increase insurance as well. Just in case. Uh, on me, because I know how to handle a gun and Justin doesn't. <laughs> oh, boy. Well, there you have it. But, you know, um, these are probably the things that people were looking at that made them go, hmm. You have to look at all of these things uh, when a death occurs. Yep. When a death occurs and there's a firearm involved, yeah, for sure. Some folks thought Barry Harshbarger was also acting weird after Mark died. He told his family that any questions for Mary Beth should go through him. Although he initially denied that he and Mary Beth had become intimately involved, 
After he left his family and filed for divorce, he took up with Mary Beth and cut himself off from the rest of the family. During his divorce proceedings, Barry admitted that he and Mary Beth were having a sexual relationship, but only, he said, after Mark's death. Mark's dad, Lee, wanted the RCMP to have another look and began feeding them more information about what he'd learned and Mary Beth's behavior before and after Mark's death. It was two years after Mark died that the RCMP went to Mishapin and learned more about what had been going on between Mark and Mary Beth and her dark history. In 2008, after a legal battle with the two life insurance companies that held Mark Harshbarger's insurance policies, State Farm and Aetna, U.S. District Judge Thomas I. Vanaski ruled that Mary Beth was to be paid out for the policies. There was a stipulation that stated Mary Beth had to return the insurance money if she, quote, were convicted of the decedent's homicide, end quote. Crown prosecutors felt they didn't have enough evidence and couldn't charge Mary Beth with murder, so they charged her with criminal negligence causing death and careless use of a firearm. Mary Beth decided to fight her charges and fought extradition as well. On March 29, 2010, her appeal against extradition was denied by the Third Circuit Court of Appeals, affirming the extradition order from April 2008. The same judge who had ordered the insurance payout directed Mary Beth to surrender to the U.S. Marshals by May 14 to await extradition to Canada. Mary Beth was later allowed to post $200,000 bail, but did not avail herself of that option. Instead, she chose to stay in jail. As she was not charged with murder, what RCMP had discovered about Mary Beth's past was not admissible at trial. Mary Beth Harshbarger, after arriving in Newfoundland on May 17th to face her charge and the possibility of a minimum four-year prison sentence. Mary Beth was tried without a jury in the Supreme Court of Newfoundland and Labrador at Grand Falls, Windsor, presided over by Justice Richard LeBlanc. An emotional response was elicited from both Mary Beth and the Harshbarger family during the trial when a video showing Mark Harshbarger's deceased body graphically displayed a bullet hole in his denim overalls. Do you know, Mike, if they offered the family members to leave the court before it was shown? I don't know. I, I don't know what the policy is around that, mm. um, but it would... <sighs> because that would... That would be hard, mm-hmm. um, and I'd hope that the judge would say, you know, for anyone, family members in the, in, in the uh, what do you call it, the audience, the, um, in the courtroom, uh, give them the opportunity to leave. But, you know, it's, uh, somebody's died, and, and in court, um, y- you have you to, have to th- know the facts. You have, you have to, to go, go through, through all the, the you got, have to go through all the ugly, don't you? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. If, if I'm a family member... Uh, and that has happened to one of my loved ones, mm. I think I'm going to stay. I think I'm going to stay and I'm going to gonna see because it, for personally, I'm already traumatized by my loved one's death <laughs> and and I, I would have to steal myself for what I'm about to see, but I would want to see it. I mean, we're separated from death. I remember when I first moved to Moscow in the early 90s, mm-hmm. if, if somebody was killed, they'd like show the body on the news yep they do that in a lot of places and they don't do that here in north america yeah the trial explored the timing and lighting conditions at the moment mary beth shot mark crucial due to her claim of mistaking him for a bear despite efforts the precise time and lighting at the shooting remained uncertain 
Video evidence was presented, but there were doubts about its accuracy in reflecting actual conditions. Testimonies varied on whether it was too dark for Mary Beth to correctly identify her target, with some suggesting visibility was sufficient, while others indicated it was challenging to distinguish human from animal forms. The police had undertaken two reenactments of the events surrounding Mark Harshbarger's death. The first, just two days post-event, aimed to replicate the exact conditions with efforts to ensure the accuracy of lighting and positioning. The reenactments sought to determine if the shooting was accidental or intentional, with the conclusion leading toward the former. However, uncertainties regarding the precise conditions at the time of the shooting, including lighting and the shooter's visibility, left doubts about the exactness of Mary Beth Harshbarger's perspective. A year later, the second simulation faced challenges like diminished memories and technical issues, making it difficult to rely entirely on these observations to assess Mary Beth's guilt or innocence. Although Mary Beth did not testify, her explanation of the events to RCMP in several interviews and that of Lambert Green, the other adult present at the time, were considered. Justice Richard D. LeBlanc considered various factors to determine whether Mary Beth was criminally negligent in causing Mark's death, including the lighting conditions, her awareness of Mark's and Lambert Green's movements, and her state of mind. Despite the absence of full daylight, there was insufficient evidence to confirm it was too dark for proper target identification. Factors like Lambert Green's proximity to Mark Harshbarger, Mary Beth's potential unawareness of her exact hunting path, and her subsequent actions and observations were crucial. The judge also noted Mary Beth's experience as a hunter and her reasonable belief a bear was present, ultimately leading to the tragic misidentification of her husband as a bear. In his conclusion, Justice LeBlanc wrote, quote, In his final submissions to me on the determination of his client's guilt or innocence, defense counsel referred to a coined phrase used by another judge with regard to the circumstances in this case. I agree that it is appropriate here to conclude that Mr. Harshbarger's death resulted from a, quote, constellation of unfortunate facts which reasonably caused Mrs. Harshbarger to believe that she was shooting at a bear. I am totally satisfied, based on my full and careful assessment of what has been put before me, that the death of Mr. Harshbarger was the result of an accident and nothing more. No criminal responsibility can be attached to Mrs. Harshbarger's conduct in the shooting of her husband. The brutal consequence of the death of a husband, father, son, brother, or family member cannot and has not been without consideration here. However, the human condition is such that people cannot always act perfectly, and even when people act reasonably, accidents unfortunately will occur. Here the circumstances surrounding the death of Mr. Harshbarger cannot justify a finding of criminality after a full careful and independent assessment of them. As a result, the charge of criminal negligence against Mrs. Harchbarger is dismissed. So his judgment was it, it was a tragic accident. Uh, yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I'm, uh, you know, sometimes people want people jailed for, for accidents as well. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I don't know how much good that does. Uh, yeah, you know, I don't. The, I don't know the why. Persons, the person's sort of like in their own jail, in their own minds, right? Like mm -hmm. if it was, if it's truly an accident, the guilt you would feel, you know. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So just to counter that really quickly, 
Mm-hmm. Um, we're about to hear from Mark's dad, Lee, uh, in a few quotes. But just to counter that really quickly, CBC did a not super scientific reenactment themselves using a scope and the, using that exact same kind of scope, which was mm-hmm. a light gathering scope mm-hmm. at the same similar time of day, albeit in Ontario, it, the light quality might have been the same, but it was a light gathering scope and you could plainly see everything. You could make out trees and their trunks and what they were, the type of tree even, with that particular kind of scope at the same distance. So, I don't know. TV show. Right, right. TV show that is is paid paid for drama, essentially. Yeah. Like, yes, it, it's, news, it's news programming, but, you know. You know, uh, branch, yeah. tree branches in the way of the scope. Sure, all sun, kinds of things. Sun going down in glints. Mm-hmm. You know, nobody's going to be able to, to be able to go, this is what she saw. No. No. So according to westernstar.com, Mark's dad spoke to reporters after the verdict, quote, The victim's father, Lee Harshbarger, expressed heartbroken disappointment Friday that there will be no appeal. I don't think the whole thing is fair, said the 77-year-old retired conservation officer. You shouldn't be able to shoot and kill somebody and just walk away and say, I thought it was an animal. There should be consequences. His son's death has bitterly divided the family and estranged Lee Harshbarger from his daughter-in-law and two young grandchildren. He was in court every day of the trial in Grand Falls, Windsor, Newfoundland, along with his companion, Carol, and another son and daughter. It was wrongful death, the grieving father said. Definitely it was wrongful death, but I don't think that I will file a civil suit. Lee Harshbarger says that he will always believe the trial put too much stress on his son's dark clothing, and not enough on basic hunter safety. Still, news that there will be no appeal means it's time for the family to try to move on. He said, quote, I guess it's about as far as we can go. We tried, end quote. The man lost his son, and that's heart-wrenching. Yeah. Uh, this whole thing is, I don't know how you'd do this to me, Mike. This, this, this is one of those just wholly tragic stories. There's nothing good in any of this, and... and God, I, I hope they can find some peace. I've known some women who, uh, in my life, who were volatile, mm-hmm. like Mary Beth. Like, still, I would love to know how she actually, like, what she did to shoot somebody in the leg. You know, yeah. that one always kind of st- stuck with me a little bit. Mm-hmm. But I, I know some people, I still do, who are like that in their mm-hmm. reactions, and uh, they are really... Uh, over the top and like sparky. Uh, yeah, more yeah. than sparky, more than spark, like <laughs> fire, a, bl- a blaze, a blaze. Uh, and and they tend to they tend to get a, a bad rap in life. I think a lot of times because they're not this retiring, frail little flower mm. that some people believe a woman should be. Or yeah, there's all kinds of people in the world. There are all kinds of people in the world. And just because somebody is fiery doesn't mean that they're a murderer. There are a lot of ideas about that society puts on people about how they should act. Like what a woman should be sort of thing, right? Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Yeah. So Mark's family erected a granite memorial for him. And the epitaph reads fittingly, another fine day afield. And that's it. For Dark Poutine, episode 306, The Tragic Death of Mark Harshbarger. 
That's right. It's time for voicemails. You can leave us a message at 1-877-327-5786 or 1-877-DARK-PTN. We'd love to hear from you. Let's see who called us this week. So, I think you're, you're going to be shocked when you hear who called us, Matthew. Uh-oh. Great Big Pete. Uh-huh. <laughs> Big Pete here. I'm calling today to mark the news of Byron Carr's murderer being arrested, which is good news for the Charlottetown Police Force. But more importantly, it gives peace to Byron's family, as well as the gay community on the island. Let me preface the following by letting you know that although I'm not gay, I do identify with and respect the LGBTQ community. I moved to Charlottetown from Ontario in June of 1997, where I took mathematics in summer school at Charlottetown Rural High School, despite the fact that I was registered to attend school at Colonel Gray High School in the fall. It was a bit of a culture shock moving to Charlottetown from the big city, but I ended up instantly falling in love with it. I worked as a busker and went to a cafe on Victoria Row called Cafe Diem that my friend's mom ran. But this beautiful island full of wonderful people did have its dark side. Let me tell you about one of those. One day in summer school, our teacher asked us what we got up to over the weekend. When I told him I hung out at Cafe Diem, he proclaimed, that's where the other side hangs out, in his thick island accent. And in my ignorance of his ignorance, I replied, Oh, you mean Colonel Gray students? And he flippantly replied, No, that's where the fags hang out. This comment upset me deeply, but I kept my cool, and I politely asked him, So what if I was gay? The class snickered, and the lesson moved on without addressing the issue further, much like the rest of society didn't address the issue of Byron's murder. Skipping to the present day, it was really nice to hear the Charlottetown police admit that it was less than hospitable to gays or members of the LGBTQ community back in the day. More importantly, that they worked to keep the investigation open years after the murders took place. Now, I can only hope that the LGBTQ community feels a bit of peace and can truly rest abiguate on their island cradled in the waves. As always... Thank you guys for your coverage of these dark topics, and give my love to Steve. <laughs> so uh, that's a that's a voicemail. Thanks, Great Big Pete. I'm gonna make Great Big Pete an honorary gay. <laughs> make him an honorary gay. Yeah. Uh, all right. Uh, let's listen to another. Oh dear, third time's a charm. I've tried to do this three times now my phone keeps acting up anyways um i'll try to keep it short and sweet um just wanted to call in and say another great episode um you guys man you guys are by far above me on the best true crime podcast out there you deserve an award um multiple um the compassion and realism and the stark truth like and honesty that you guys give from your own personal perspectives and stuff is really good. Um, Mike, I appreciate your your honesty and your struggles with sobriety and substance abuse and your mental health issues. Hit a little close to home for me there. And I can relate with you a little bit there. Um, thankfully, I have a really supportive husband who helped me get through my time and you know, we got the help I needed, and he's an awesome guy, and and my daughter, and yeah, I have I have a really good uh, support system. But hearing your your 
struggles was really helpful. And, yeah, you guys, you really keep it real. And, and Matthew, I really appreciate your perspective as a, as a member of the LGBTQ community. Um, your viewpoints and sharing, like, the things you've been through, but even, like, historical viewpoints on how your community was treated in the past and things that were done. Man, we come a long way in 2024, but we still got a long ways to go. And, uh, yeah, like, I really appreciate your viewpoints and and even, like, with the mental health and the things that you guys say. You guys are great. And, um, man, hearing some of the stupid theories the cops used to come up with back in the day to just say, hey, I mean, this guy was gay. Like, and he was mistreated because of that. Like, oh, and then, yeah, ridiculous. But here we are. Um, uh, I'm glad to hear about the update on that teacher. I I heard about that case before. I haven't listened to that episode, the older ones. I mostly listen. I got to get caught up, but I've mostly listened to your guys' newer stuff with Matthew and Mike both on there. But anyways, I'm rambling. (laughs) That's what I do. I'm a South Shore I'm sure Ross Mike knows all about that, how we like the iron. But anyways, um, great episode. Um, appreciate everything you guys you do. Ah, gosh. Everything you guys do. Sorry, I'm tired. Anyways, have a good day, and go craft in your juke. Oh, my God. Uh, I love her. I love her. <laughs> I knew, I knew she, from, she was from the South Shore the minute she started talking. I love I kn- her. Thank yeah. you so much. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. Thank you, thank you, thank you. That is awesome. And, yeah, I mean, that's, that's why I wanted to do this. I, di- I didn't want to do another true crime history show where, you know, people go, oh. <gasps> You know, there's enough of those. There's there's plenty of those kind of, oh my gosh, I'm so shocked shows. Uh, I want I want the best looking co-host award. <laughs> we have won awards. We won Canadian Podcasting Awards, two of them, uh, oh, really? for documentary and true crime. Yep. Before so, me. Pre-Matthew. Oh, I'm yeah. letting the team down, Mike. No, well. Yeah, you are. Not really. No, you're not. Anyway, let's move on. That's it for this week's voicemails. Again, you can leave us one at 1-877-327-5786 or 1-877-DARKPTN. We'd love to hear from you, even if it is just to say hi and to tell us to go shit in our hats. If you're stumped for what to chat with us about, a quick story is welcome. Yeah, so we do have a Donut Money donor this week, Ooh. and uh, her name is Nicole Madden. Nicole Madden is our Donut Money donor. Uh, I don't know where Nicole is from, Matthew. Where is she from? She's from, she's from Madison County. She's from, so her name is Madden, and she's from Madison County. Madison yeah. County where? There's a lot of Ma- there's a lot of Madison County. The one Matthew. where all the the one where all the bridges are. Oh, Madison County Bridge, the bridges of Madison <laughs> County. Okay, all right. Yeah. So so <laughs> what does Nicole Madden do in Madison County? She's a Milner. Oh, so she helps build the bridges. No, a Milner. Milner. Oh, she's hats. Hats. What? And her store is called the Mad Hatter. Hats. The Mad yeah. Hatter. Yeah. So the Mad Hatter, Nicole Madden, 
The yeah. Mad Hatter from Madison. <laughs> yeah. See what I did there? I see what you did there. And I There's did it a... all in real time. <laughs> you did it all in real time. And it's not Papua New Guinea. <laughs> For fuck's sakes, get a globe. It's, uh, I had one. I, I, I had one right there. You can look at it. No, well, it's Papua I think New I'm, Guinea. I, I, I'm going to do a month of Papua New Guinea. <laughs> oh, jeez. We heard enough of that. Anyway, <laughs> thanks to all our patrons and donut money donors, past and present, for your generosity. It helps to keep the show going. You can become a patron of Dark Poutine at patreon.com slash darkpoutine. For a one-time donation, you can send us donut money via PayPal using our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. If you don't already subscribe to the show, it would mean a lot if you did. You can easily find Dark Poutine on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. If you haven't gotten yours yet, my book, Murder, Madness, and Mayhem, is available to order via a link on the Dark Poutine website. And speaking of darkpoutine.com, please check it out for show notes and other cool stuff. We'd appreciate it if you took the time to give Dark Poutine a like or a follow on Facebook and Instagram. Most importantly, thank you for listening, and tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. So, until next time, as we say, don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Bye. Bye-bye. Her name is Elspeth. Elspeth Tassioni. You know her as the offbeat but brilliant defense attorney from The Good Wife and The Good Fight. You've been a very busy little bee. Buzz, buzz. Now she's in New York with the NYPD. This is very different. Better. But still using her unconventional ways to find the truth. You're trying to sniff me, Miss Tassioni? <laughs> Elspeth, new series Thursdays on Global. Stream on Stack TV.